Hello, and welcome to another edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 12th, 2024. For those of you who spent the week at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, we hope you're able to rest and recharge. We're going to take a look at some FDA policy-related information that you may have missed in the midst of all the deal-making talk. First up is a new effort to promote international collaboration and increase access to gene therapy. The new Collaboration on Gene Therapies Global Pilot, or CoGenT Global, love that acronym, is still in its early stages. But the pilot project is intended to promote concurrent submission and collaborative review of gene therapy applications among different regulators. The idea is similar to Project Orbis, which launched a few years ago to allow concurrent submission and review of oncology products and aims to speed access to innovative therapies outside the U.S. and Europe. The FDA will not tell our colleague Sue Sutter much about their program, uh, the new program, other than it it hopes it will promote regulatory convergence in the gene therapy space. CBER Director Peter Marks said during a briefing this week that the that CoGenT Global will include standing regulatory members of the International Conference for Harmonization, which is Health Canada and Swiss Medic. Partners also will be allowed to participate in internal regulatory meetings and meetings that include the sponsor, but would, but those will be conducted under confidentiality agreements. Specific regulatory reviews would be shared and discussed with partners as well. So this seems like an interesting idea. Uh, I'm curious if you all had any kind of first blush thoughts on this, on CoGenT Global, other than that the acronym probably needs to be updated. Yeah, if the uh, acronym is ever any indication, it will be sort of a uh, a cumbersome process. Uh, you know, Project Orbis has been uh, um, been great, although, uh, you know, we've done a lot of reporting about how it has not been a uh, been a panacea and uh you know, there is still, uh, um, you know, delays where perhaps sponsors and even regulators would not uh, want there to be delays in, in review and approval sort of across uh, various regions. And I think uh, because uh, gene therapy is uh, even more of a complex thing and uh, uh, even newer, although there's, there's now sort of something of a template for, for kind of these kinds of collaborations, thanks to the uh, the cancer center's uh, works, I think it may uh, um, it may not be as uh, um as fruitful at the at the beginning, but uh, you know you have to have to start somewhere, and I think uh, um, it's going to be a uh, um, a worthwhile endeavor for everyone, even if it's not sort of kind of an immediate uh, um, revolution in terms of, sort of kind of review review times. Yeah, that was one of my first thoughts about this was you know would sponsors want to participate in this, and you know we saw that Project Orbis is popular. There's no problem with getting sponsors to you to you know go in and participate in that program, but you know, when you start talking about we got to make we got to put confidentiality agreements in place and, you know, multiple regulators in the same meeting and, you know, it, you, you start to wonder if people start to maybe have a little bit of pause. Um, I mean, I just was it reminded me of the kind of the early days of the FDA EMA parallel scientific advice project where, you know, sponsors worried that if they got. They could, you know, if, if they got unfavorable advice, they could lose the U.S. and European markets altogether, which was not <laughs> the case. You know, th- that yeah. was not the intent. That was never, never the case at all with that program. But it hindered participation, at least early. And now it's sort of kind of sort of starting to it's picking it's picked up since, you know, those early couple years. But, you know, 
it's just one of those things where you know you wonder if you know people may some sponsors may be like i'll let somebody else do the be the first one you know kind of through the door yeah i mean it's a good it's a good point uh, derek that the uh the fewer interactions you uh you have with uh, a regulator or uh, you know anybody else in your professional or personal life the the higher the stakes that uh, um that decision point uh, becomes so uh um, you know, hopefully that doesn't scare uh, scare sponsors off, and they uh, they see uh, the upside as opposed to the uh, the risks involved. Uh, but uh, I uh, I think you're right that it could uh, um, could be a little uh, um, slower as we're going to be widely adopted than uh, um, than uh, oncology simply because there's just sort of there's less uh, less gene therapy work uh, um, out there as a, as, a, as a you know function of kind of it's 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 a additional complexity. Yeah, and you know, just me thinking thinking more and more about this you also wonder you know are they worried that like you you know somebody one of one of the regulators talks another one out of potentially approving something or out of a you know clinical trial you know protocol that would have been that that the sponsor wanted or you know you're obviously you're hoping for vice versa where you know you say that you know they're all talking each other into doing doing the same thing, but, you know, you potentially create, you know, you wonder if, you know, it's part of the business case for doing this, if that's a significant kind of issue as well. Although, you know, everybody works together, everything is fine, but that's not a problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, you, you again, is you know, you just cause all, you know, regulatory convergence, everyone likes this idea, that idea in principle, but, you know, it's it starts people thinking about all these scenarios and things that it's just you know it's it's kind of a fun thought exercise but when it's actually put into practice then you actually start have to start panicking about some of this stuff well one thing that um there was a, a meeting that the Cersei meeting i'm going to talk about um uh there was a panel discussion on cmc and i wonder if there's some relation to this um peter marx has repeatedly talked about how, how difficult manufacturing uh, gene therapies are and um there was a discussion at in, in in this panel on cmc about collaborating more and sharing more ideas um among industry and and um and academia um with between companies and with fda to try to tackle this problem of the difficulty in manufacturing and so i wonder if um having uh, you, you know um sharing more information with international regulators might also address some of the some of the hurdles in 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 in, in gene therapy yeah that's a good that's a good point uh brenda because i've heard i've heard people like you i've heard some of the fda people talk about this like the one of the primary reasons for convergence is to just have one quality standard because then it's it makes it easy on the sponsors because they know exactly what they have to do to make everybody happy and you bring up you know the ones that don't get fda approval or you know sign off um, on their operations but can get other countries you know every sign off everyone's kind of brought up to the everyone's on the same level and I think it was Janet Woodcock who said that there's really no reason why there shouldn't be one quality standard for the entire globe, you know. But, you know, again, things like that are easier probably said than done, maybe. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone uh, likes the idea of uh, uh, streamlining, but they want to be the uh, the ones that make the final decision. So that's the sort of kind of conflicting uh, 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 priorities there in terms of, sort of kind of how you uh, design a collaboration or a, 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 a single standard uh, based on those, uh, those two competing criteria. Since we mentioned Project Orbis, I also wanted to um, bring up that um, EMA said this week that they are going to be become officially become a Project Orbis observer this year. This is an issue that came up um, about six months ago. Uh, it was first mentioned, but now apparently that process is now just um, is getting going. And it also brings up this idea of Project Orbis. Now we've got CoGenT Global for gene therapies. I mean, the the idea has always been: can we get this this sort of thing beyond oncology? And you know, we're kind of, you know, at least they've taken a step towards doing that now. Could you? I mean, could we see this expansion kind of, you know, if grow, continue to grow like this? Or I mean, are we going to see? Do you think it's just going to take a lot of baby steps? Or, you know, can the whether it's the Cogen T global model or the Project Orbis model, kind of be um, recreated for neurology products or non-oncology drugs, which people like to say now when they're trying to, uh, you know, come up with these programs. I would suspect that it would go more the technical than the therapeutic category uh, route, uh, like Brenda was saying that uh, you know there's a lot of focus on. Uh, um, the idea of uh, having a single uh, um, manufacturing standard as we're kind of uh, uh, streamlined production and uh, um, uh, paperwork for uh, um, uh, sponsors. And, uh, you know, whereas, uh, um, you know, oncology is sort of kind of an innovation uh, hotbed in terms of sort of, kind of regulatory uh, um, reforms and uh, gene therapies and emerging uh, um, area. Um, I don't think there's sort of kind of another sort of kind of uh, um, Obvious segment. I mean, neurology. You mentioned uh, Derek. Obviously, it's kind of an emerging space. Uh, um, you know, rare diseases comes to mind in terms of sort of kind of uh, a place where sort of kind of uh, resource pooling would make a lot of sense. But uh, um, uh, I do think, in terms of sort of kind of having the broadest impact, that uh, something about sort of either kind of uh, um, making the applications more standard or making making the, uh, uh, the the GMP requirements more standard is could have the um, broader. Uh, um, uh, meaning to uh, to sponsors and sort of kind of something that was sort of going to be more uh, um, uh, disease specific. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see how that um, how this plays out. I know it's something that uh, a lot of industry is watching. Next, we're going to look at some educated predictions for 2024. Brenda, you heard some current and former senior FDA leaders discuss what they think is going to happen this year. What did they say? Yes, this was at the Center for Excellence in Regulatory Sciences and Innovation annual summit meeting um, that was held in San Francisco um, last Sunday, right before uh, the kickoff of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. And um, there was a panel with um, Robert uh, Califf, the commissioner, and um, several former chief heads of the agency, including former acting commissioner Janet Woodcock and former commissioner Scott Gottlieb and Mark McClellan. And, you know, the moderator throughout the question um, to ask them to make one hopeful prediction for, for this new year. And this, um, their, their answers showed what, what, what they're watching and also, 
significant developments for the coming year. And Robert Califf said GLP-1s, he pointed to that and said um, that they, they will continue to be um, big developments in this area. And, and GLP-1s were the hot topic of um, of, of this of this past year in terms of treating uh, obesity. And he and Califf said that they will continue to make a, a, a impact on overcoming addiction to food. And Gottlieb pointed to drugs in the pipeline for the treatment of mental health, um, he, uh, dr drugs that target the brain. And he gave a shout out to a Jane j drug in the pipeline. Uh, he didn't mention the name of the drug, but the company has two in phase three for major depressive disorder. Um, McClellan said there were developments with neurodegenerative and behavioral health treatment, as well as G GLP-1s. And he also said this would be a big year for generating evidence, which is a which is a really um, major issue for industry and for FDA. And in fact, Caleb, when he gave opening remarks at um, before the meeting started, he said that a two one of two of his top priorities were um, evidence generation and fighting mis misinformation. Um, and Woodcock, she um, she used her response to respond to um, Caleb's comment about the, the, the fact that the U.S. has is close to the lowest life expectancy of any um, any high income country. And she said that that was really um, an issue with the factors behind that were cultural and not something that medicine could really address. But really, um, Another fascinating part of this panel was that the moderator, Andy Plump, who's, who's the president of R&D at Takeda, asked questions that drew out how it, uh, FDA is addressing harmonization and the use of sponsored data. He, he noted that countries are looking to collaborate on product reviews to accelerate patient access to products. And, and he actually pointed to Project Orbis as an example of that. And he asked FDA what they could do to help, you know, increase um, patient access. And Woodcock noted that FDA is working toward having a global regulatory approval of, of quality aspects of, of products. Um, so companies don't have to submit dozens of changes dozens of change applications to different regulators. And Gottlieb pointed to the potential to have a, a global system of approval for generic drugs. And he also said that harmonization of other aspects of the review process would be difficult, given that other countries face pressure to pay attention to how the products are going to be paid for. And he said there was also, there was also really interesting comments made in this discussion about data digitization. And Gottlieb revealed, he pointed out that um, it, when he was commissioner, there were discrete areas where the agency was able to de-identify data and consolidate it across different reviews so that they created a data set that, that provided insights that they wouldn't get from just looking at one sponsor's da single data set. And Califf um, was critical about sponsors um, deeming information to be co commercially confidential. He said this was um, a pretty extreme level right now, and he point he he particularly took issue with sp um, sponsors claiming that information was confidential when it came to the supply chain information involving drug shortages. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I like the the commercial confidential information comments, um, you know, from Caliph. I mean, it's trying to say that you want to, I don't know if you, you know, kind of suggested that they, there's been this kind of mission creep, so to speak, and in, in terms of what constitutes commercial confidential information over the years and, you know, kind of wanting to at least, you know, reset it back to the original interpretation of the law to make some more some more of these things public and you know of course but you know we've heard this before and you know commissioners have multiple commissioners including Gottlieb have said you know we need to have more we need to do better with you know making whether it's complete response letters or you know other things other things public that you know industry likes to call confidential information and you know they you know it 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 sounds good at the podium and then kind of you you were still waiting for some of that to happen yeah he was uh very eager for that uh, during his first uh um uh stint at the fda and then when he uh uh came back as the uh as the commissioner he uh um you know also sort of kind of had them uh uh look into it again and uh, my recollection is that his conclusion was that uh that the amount of effort it would take to, um, you know, re- remove uh, uh, confidential information uh, um, from the uh, uh, complete response letters uh, just wasn't worth the the public health benefit of the disclosures that would uh, would result. Like that, you couldn't actually learn as much, uh, um, you know, from the redacted versions as uh, um, as a result of all the uh, the removals that the um, then you uh, then the then the public health benefit that would be generated by those people that were doing the redacting. To, doing something else if that if that makes sense that's sort of kind of uh um so it's uh um you know a very interesting uh um uh question but sort of put it but a uh um they ultimately decided that it was not uh, worth it if they could through kind of somehow define down what uh confidential commercial information is then uh, then maybe it uh, um it would make more uh, um more sense uh, um to uh, to do it i think uh for the most part perhaps there's not as uh much of a sense that uh, FDA is rejecting drugs for arbitrary reasons than, than there uh, there was uh, before. I mean, who knows how justified that uh, that was when sort of when they had the, most of that hue and cry about the uh, the need to publicly release uh, um, complete response letters was out there. But sort of there is a um, a uh, um, a sense, and I think the FDA has been pretty successful with this. That, that if uh, look, if the uh, the sponsors think we're being unreasonable, they are welcome to uh, share everything that we've uh, um, we've told them. And sponsors, for the most part, have uh, declined to do that. So uh, um, it's a it's a question of sort of kind of what uh, um, what sponsors want to keep close to the vest more than sort of kind of what uh, um, what FDA is not uh, not telling people. I will also say uh, um, in uh, uh, response to uh, um, uh, Brenda's description of the predictions that uh, I honestly don't think that any of those things is going to happen this year, but uh, I think they all will happen <laughs> eventually. Um, and that's just a, uh, um, a function of uh, the fact that, uh, um, you know, uh, things take, uh, uh, take time and uh, um, uh, science regulation is, is very, very difficult. And it's, uh, it's not like you can snap your fingers and get through kind of, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a robust data generation system uh, um, up and running, uh, you know, Sentinel. I uh, uh, we've been running about for uh, feels like uh, almost decades uh, now, and uh, you know, it's still not the kind of thing that we can that the FDA can use for a uh, um, a first pass on uh, um, on stuff just because it's still so uh, um, difficult to uh, to get uh, um, good data um, 
out of it, and anything else that sort of gets uh, gets built built up will be uh, be equally slow. Of course, that doesn't mean that it uh, um, shouldn't uh, um, shouldn't be worked on, or that the uh, um, that the uh, results that are being generated now aren't uh, um, worth getting. But uh, um, it's just a just a function of sort of kind of how uh, how non-transformative uh, stuff often is, uh, um, even though we want it to be. Yeah, and, and keeping with that theme of things that won't happen right away, the you know Gottlieb seemed to give sort of a reality check on the convergence idea too, with his um, you know kind of the description of the generic, you know, everyone wanting you know one generic standard for the entire planet, and you know it, it, he said he su- seemed to suggest that it's not that simple, and the FDA has even admitted there are statutory obstacles that keep them from. Doing things like approving foreign, um, you know, foreign uh, reference products and in in stuff like that. I mean, it's a you know, not not as not as simple as you know it would seem to be in you know everybody's mind. <laughs> well, Matt may not think that any of these are coming true, just to see if if any of them actually do, or if we get if we get closer to any of them. So thanks, Brenda. Sure. Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to eat uh, crow on our uh, January 2025 <laughs> podcast if all that uh, all that does happen. So. Finally, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. Robert Califf, the FDA commissioner, made an appearance at the Consumer Electronics Show this week, not to check out the latest robot assistant or TV technology, but to discuss what has become a hot topic in healthcare. Califf said that the FDA continues to learn about AI and machine learning, just like industry and roles in the process is education and to convene community members. He also said that the AI ML community will have to help ensure the so-called learning algorithms are functioning correctly. He said algorithm assessments need to be continuous and that there needs to be societal accountability for them. But Caleb also said that the algorithms won't be useful if the U.S. healthcare system can improve. He said the U.S. needs the ability to follow patients long-term because sometimes short-term risks of a drug can lead to long-term benefits. If the algorithm can't learn that, then it will, won't be much help to patients and their providers. So we're seeing more attention paid to AI and machine learning in recent years. What do you think of Caleb's thoughts on AI's introduction into the healthcare system? I mean, do you think we're going to be limited or, you know, in how some of the more advanced AI gets used? You know, I think, uh, um, like everywhere else, the uh, the the promise of uh, um, AI and healthcare is is vast, but the uh, the hype is even uh, more uh, expansive if that's uh, um, if that's possible. So I think it'll uh, it'll be a while uh, before uh, um, you know these things really kind of uh, um, uh, transform what uh, doctors are able to do and the physicians are able to receive. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in the camp of where like. AI scanning like large amounts of like adverse event reports for clinical trial data and, you know, using that to spot trends and so forth. That makes sense to me, you know, at least the way I conceive AI at this point. But um, and I could even see it in what I guess they're calling decision support for physicians where, you know, it'll suggest it'll, you know, you punch in the symptoms and all the other info and it kind of suggests, you know, what you could do or suggests a diagnosis and so forth. But the physician still gets to make the decision. I'm still, I guess, a lot skeptical that eventually we're going to have a computer. I'm just going to walk up to a computer and it's going to say, Derek, you have the flu. Take this drug. And it spits it out the bottom. 
that you know and you know to a certain extent we've seen that in some of these sci-fi movies and so forth where you know the computer just does it all for you and i'm sure it's possible and i'm sure it's some someday probably in my lifetime it'll happen i'm still kind of in the the old school camp where yeah humans can make mistakes but you know i i guess i still want the human doctor to Tell me I have the flu and here's your prescription. Maybe that I don't know. <laughs> I'm just being too. I'm being <laughs> too old school. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, Derek and I are on uh, different sides of this uh, Skynet versus Spellcheck debate as to uh, what AI <laughs> will be. Uh, you know, the uh, Skynet, of course, the uh, the kind of the uh, um, the AI uh, living cybernetic uh, organism, or however it's described in the uh, the Terminator series, that sort of kind of ends the and uh, uh, is sort of kind of uh, uh, hell bent on destroying humanity because it's. There's a threat and sort of, uh, you know, it was kind of uh, brought online to be helpful and then sort of kind of ended up being very, very unhelpful in a uh, thermonuclear uh, uh, way. Uh, and whereas, uh, you know, Spellcheck is just sort of kind of the uh, um, the fun little squiggles that uh, um, are helpful and sort of kind of get you uh, um, get you out of embarrassment on uh, emails and everything else. So uh, um, I think I'm much more in the uh, um, the squiggles camp on uh, um, on that. But uh, um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. You know, sort of Spellcheck gets, gets better and better and uh, um so will ai uh, um you know but it's not uh, not without risk i mean there was just uh, um i think this week we were uh, reading about uh, um uh, all these uh, uh postmasters uh, in uh, um the uk that were uh, sentenced to uh, um uh, for fraud uh, um because of a uh, an, an accounting software glitch over uh, decades or uh, or two i feel like i don't have the details in front of me but i was kind of sort of horrified by uh, reading that. And that was for kind of uh, just, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of fairly basic uh, computing uh, problems that's kind of caused a lot of pain for uh, um, for people. And, uh, you know, that's certainly being rectified uh, now, but, uh, um, you know, way too late for uh, um, uh, for many to get their, uh, um, their lives back. And uh, you'd hate to think that, uh, um, you know, we're kind of adding more computer uh, um Technology in uh, in healthcare could uh, do the same thing, but uh, you know, uh, human doctors are uh, um, are far from infallible, uh, um, and uh, you know, anything we can do to sort of kind of make uh, um, make decision making better, I think we should explore it. You know, I mean, even Caleb in you know the conversation um, was was talking about you know that the whole short term versus long term thing. I mean, he said that if you only thought about like the short term risks of things like putting in, I mean, he was using cardiology examples, like putting in a stent, like, yeah, the risk of that surgery and, and recovery and all that stuff. Yeah, that's super risky. Well, if the AI doesn't know that long-term you're going to add 20 years to your life or 30, 40 years to your life, whatever, whatever the number is, it's never going to recommend doing that stent procedure because it doesn't think, it can't think beyond the initial, you know, the initial risk of of that versus the benefits. So, you know, again, say, you know, not the, exactly the same, but, you know, kind of a similar concept that we, you know, we kind of have to, you know, have to, you know, think about, you know, as, as AI and learning and machine learning and so forth kind of continues to take off here. Um, AI also came up uh, in the panel discussion at the Cersei meeting on um, misinf medical misinformation, and th there was a discussion about how AI might be used to combat misinformation. And 
you know, Kenneth made a comment there about, um, he said that we're going through an augmented phase of AI to the cur current version where AI does its own, can do its own thing. And he, he said, uh, he questioned, um, you know, who, who gets to decide who gets to decide what information is in the mix that AI makes its um, predictions or uh, assessments on? And he he questioned whether it, AI would you know synthesize information from just trusted organizations or it, other non-trusted organizations would be in the mix. So um, that's of course a the big uh, one of the big uh, questions with AI is what's it based on yeah that's and that's an that's a question that won't be answered probably for a while too you know and there's all kinds of existential and you know real you know real world um, issues that have to be resolved before they can even get to that so well that's all for today for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this and other podcasts on the sightline channel in apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud TuneIn, and spotify podcasts as well as via smart speakers if they have been set up as your default podcast provider thanks again for listening to drug fix i'm derek ingery with brenda sandberg and nielsen hobbs take care and we'll see you next time